Welcome to this week's edition of the American Scottish Foundation, Scots in Us. Yeah. You will be speaking with the Countess of Carnarvon, who will give us insight to this wonderful new project of the place that we know as Downton Abbey. And then we're going to travel to the southeast of Scotland, to the Annandale Distillery, to speak with David Thompson. But let us now begin by joining to High Kerr Castle. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with the Countess of Carnarvon, who with her husband is taking Highclere Castle forward with innovative ideas, from the filming of Downton Abbey to the opportunity to visit Highclere Castle and to the development of Highclere Castle Gin. Lady Carnarvon, good morning. Good morning. How lovely to speak to you, Camilla. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. But before we learn of the Highclere Castle Distillery, how has that has come to be and plans around it, can you begin by introducing us to Highclere Castle, your home, and the challenges of such an estate? Well, um, Highclere has been a home. There's been a home at Highclere 
for at least 1,200 years. Our earliest written records go back to 749 AD. And at that point in time, King Cuthred of Wessex granted it to the bishops of Winchester, who held it for 800 years. And then my husband's, Geordie's ancestors, bought it really after the dissolution, if you like, or the nationalisation of the monasteries in 1679 and they have been here ever since. So I rather like the idea that there's it's been two owners for really 1200 years and I like the sense of antiquity and the idea of an anchor and a visible history in what is today quite a broken brittle world that we're all trying to find where are our core values and I think in some ways the heritage and the history help us try to reorientate ourselves and I think the sense of longevity going backwards helps that we may have some sort of future and of course it's been a farm from the very start before that there was an iron age fort and before that a bronze age settlement so effectively I can go back in time to about three and a half thousand BC <laughs> and walk in time and space and through the fields and I really like that. I think it's those quiet moments of stillness and observation, which you know, I've, I've always enjoyed. And I think after the years of COVID, they've become ever more important to ever more people. That connection of the earth, of the field, to the table, to the glass, to ourselves and to our mental health. So that's a small potted history of a remarkable home. But also having such a, um, a, a large responsibility has also challenges. So uh, it, was that part of the whole idea of the distillery, how that came about? Well, yes. I mean, I think over the last, since my husband and I took over and put our feet under the table to understand what is a stately home and how to make connections with it, and entertain people and bring people here in the modern world. You know, we've also consciously tried to develop our brand. I've written books and, you know, we've made our way out into the world. Obviously, we've been much helped by the success and love for the programme Downton Abbey. But Downton Abbey doesn't give us any royalties or money. So we have to seek it through our own efforts. And in some ways, that makes you look around, observe and think. And we got this amazing email from this chap in America, Adam von Gukin, who was enjoying Downton Abbey, had a thought, emailed my husband, who came to find me and said, what do you think? I said, well, ring him. And there it was. And that began a friendship which developed over the next three years as we put together quite an ambitious programme to make, to, to distill and create a very, very exceptional gin, reflecting the exceptional history and heritage. It took us nine months of tasting gin, but now that has paid <laughs> out. We've, you know, I think we've got over 60 gold and platinum awards, one of the best gins in the world. And we've obviously launched the gin in North America and as well, you know, where that's where our focus is as well as England, and we've now got a distributor in Malta, one in Poland, and we're gradually beginning to extend ourselves. But our focus is really in North America, as well as this country. So my husband's going out to Savannah, Georgia um, in March, and I'm going out to Alabama. So we're consistently going out there to kind of persuade people to 
sip and um, sip high clay castle gin, enjoy, make cocktails, have fun, and make it part of their lives. So Adam bought the um, experience of distillers and distributors, and you know Geordie and I live at Highclere, so we're interested in in the style, in the heritage, um, and trying to distill that into a gin, which people are going to put on their drinks trolley. So it is a partnership, and we're an American partnership, and we're a British export, and I think that's really cool in this again challenging world so you pick yeah. up the challenges and you can say what are the common threads you know what well, we all love to celebrate we all love to do something well and i think as well in our consumer society perhaps it's about doing less but doing what we do well so i'm sort of quite focused on that as well the botanicals are inspired by here or come from here yes and so it's a really nice story but it's it's a lot more than that it's not just a a gin made in some castle because we think we can do it. It's actually got its own real heritage and qualities of excellence. So well, I'm happy to say we're in 22 states. We've got a great website. Wherever you are in North America, you should be able to get the gin within 48 hours now. And we probably wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for COVID. That accelerated the thought of how, the, how we can get the gin to people at a time when so much was shut. So but that was another really interesting. No, but Lady Canada, it's not easy. There's so many brands that want to be here, and they this the distribution is state by state, as you know. Yes. So <laughs> to have this penetration is fantastic. But you know, the other thing I love is when I discovered your butler's guide to the English cocktail that you've come up with, <laughs> based on your favorite um, ideas for gin recipes yours with an, e an egg white um, and I thought that was fabulous because that sort of helps us have the whole experience and um, I love the the cocktail that you put together uh, for Her Late Majesty that was beautiful with the Dubonnet. Well it's lovely I mean it was always um, making sure that we had her Dubonnet ready when she was to come to stay so um, you know sense of panic of course we had it but then there was always the sense of panic <laughs> Well, who's making it? <laughs> but you're also about to introduce cigars. So the whole experience of High Clare. Well, we have introduced cigars, are... both the Edwardian Ooh. and the Victorian. And the Victorian is, again, hugely admired. We started with a milder Edwardian and then developed another one called the Victorian. And honestly, they've also... They've also done really well. We started just to make sure there was a reason and people would catch hold of the brand, but they they have. So we're very grateful and we are, you know, keeping on going. So I'm, you know, we now need to really develop both of them. So it's exciting. But you also um give back. And I was introduced to Hi Claire when I went along to an evening where you were spotlighting that. And your and how a portion of proceeds does go to the Queen's Commonwealth Fund, um, which is wonderful. So um, it, it, that it must be really rewarding to have that element to it as well. Well, I mean, I I think the Queen was the most extraordinary woman, Queen of our world, or the book that Robert Hardman um, named, you know, used the title Queen of the World for his book. But she was extraordinary in so many ways. And um, that's quiet, small voice of calm. So, and so much of what she did had true value. And, and the Commonwealth 
was actually, I think, an extraordinary endeavour on her part. And it was just to always develop and remember friendship and relationship and the value of meeting and talking and discussion. And again, what we had in common. So it is amazing. It's amazing, obviously, to think that she was also my husband's godmother. So there's special links on every level. And I'm sure she's always appreciated a good <laughs> cocktail. You know, whenever you were lucky enough to be asked to a party, there was always the the, the careful precision and ceremony or of of the cocktail and the cocktail party and choice. They weren't just random, they were chosen with care. And I suppose we also try to do what we do with care and and have some fun. The Queen had the most amazing laugh and smile and giggle and it's about a little bit of fun as well. Well, I'm so delighted that we've had this chance to talk to you and to introduce more people to the wonderful High Clare Castle Gin and all that's going on. And I hope that we can speak again soon and maybe discuss your books, which really are um, a wonderful insight. Thank you. I'd love to, Camilla. That'd be fun. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. And now let us continue our conversations this week by meeting David Thompson, the founder and president of the Annandale Distillery in Annan, a little town in the southwest of Scotland. The distillery had not been in production for over 95 years when David stepped in in 2007. And so, David, good morning. Could you tell us of your journey to Annandale, how it begins around 2007 when the Annandale Distillery, which had not been operating for 95 years, came into your sights and how it all came together to where you are today? Yes, I, I, would, I would like to suggest that it was all terribly carefully thought through, <laughs> but it wasn't actually. Um, I've had a, I've, I actually come from the town of Dumfries, which is the next big town closest to Annan, uh, although I don't live there, I haven't lived there for a long time, but it's where my family home was and still is actually. Uh, so, so I, and I've always been interested in, in, in whiskey. Uh, and some years prior to that, my wife and I decided that we would like to diversify our business somewhat. And uh, I've always been a great fan of a country or an economy having a manufacturing base. And I, but I don't know very much about manufacturing, but I do know a fair bit about cereals and about marketing um, spirits and, and alcoholic drinks and so forth. So I thought, well, I've got both the two ends of the whiskey making process. I didn't know quite as much as I needed to about the bit in the middle, but, <laughs> but, but that wasn't a problem because I knew somebody very influential called Dr. Jim Swan. He'd been a long-term acquaintance of mine for, sadly, sadly no longer, unfortunately, but um, I'd known him for very many years prior to ever running Annandale Distillery. So of course he was my first port of call. So we, we were able in that way to actually you know, plan out, plan out the process. But actually, in terms of finding Annandale Distillery, it's quite funny because although it's, I must have passed within a couple of miles of it hundreds of times, but I didn't know it existed. And quite a lot of people in Annan didn't know it existed because it sits in a, in a kind of hollow, away from, a bit out of the town, and it's pretty anonymous, really, or it was. So I, I, I contacted the owner who had actually put the property up for sale 
build distillery buildings up for sale to use for housing. Uh, and, and I find that it was actually in the buildings at risk register in, in Scotland. And uh, I approached the farmer and uh, well, it took a year, but we came to an understanding and we ended up buying the derelict wreck of Annandale Distillery. Um, now, were there any of the original stills there or any? Uh, so none of that was there? No. It, what, what had happened is it had been owned by Johnny Walker. Uh, and um, we think they ceased production around about December 1918, which is quite bizarre in a way because they, they, they seem to have struggled through the First World War. Uh, and then having got through, then, then they closed. But if you, I suppose the backdrop would have been prohibition in the US, the temperance movement in the UK, uh, and the, the world economic collapse after the First World War. And, you know, sadly, I suppose there's 700,000 young British men less to drink alcohol. So, um, you know, all of these things, I think, conspired to give the Scotch whisky industry in general, and Johnny Walker, I believe, in particular, quite a hard time. So I guess they just decided to offload it. So they stripped out all of the machinery um, uh, I think they knocked down the still house to take the stills out and whether they went to um, one of their other distilleries, Cardew would be the only one they had at the time uh, or not, we simply can't find out. But they had stripped all the equipment out, but gladly most of the buildings were as they left them. So, um, and the most important part of the whiskey is what you're growing and putting in, but also the water and yes. the character of that. And so you, are you um, following any of the methods they use for your whiskey or? I, I would say, good Lord, no. <laughs> no, it's uh, actually, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an urban myth that the water matters a great deal. Uh, in effect, it doesn't really, um, as long as it's of reasonable quali quality. I think the, the, the key thing really is the mineral content of the water and how that affects the proliferation of yeast during the fermentation process. Um, but the, they had previously taken water from the burn that runs through the site. Um, but it's not something you do in this day and age because by and large, you know, there's, it's a very agricultural and rural area, a big dairy farming area. So there's a lot of slurry sprayed on the fields and it makes it way, its ways into the water courses. So you wouldn't want to do that. So we actually uh, um, drilled a borehole, uh, which is 90 meters deep. And we get lovely, pure, clean uh, water out, but it's got surprisingly high mineral content. So that has to be regulated. But once that's done, it's perfect for making whiskey. So. A, a modern take, but it's still Scottish water coming from deep within. So you also, as you were saying, had to rehabilitate, rebuild the buildings and create the distillery. Yeah. And we're in 2007, around that time. And you also were very aware of creating an experience because when one visits your site, one sees that there's a lot that you're doing and you've taken it into the town of Annan and to the Globe, which sounds a wonderful restaurant and tavern. Yes. Well, well, the Globe's actually in Dumfries, my hometown. So it's about 10 miles, or 17 miles, sorry, from the from the distillery, but it's all part and parcel of the same thing. Um, 
I mean, Bigelow, as you know, is very strongly associated with Robert Burns. He described it as his favourite house. And uh, that actually came up for sale roughly at the same time when we were bringing the restoration of the distillery to completion. And to be perfectly frank with you, I didn't have the headspace, never mind the money, to um, to take on another project. But I knew the owners of the Globe quite well. The, 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 the lady concerned had been in my class at school in Dumfries Academy. So we kind of left it. And um, after, I don't know how many years it would have been, um, maybe another five or four or five years, um, they, they got back in contact and asked it as if he would like to buy it. Like to, again, I declined because I thought I had too much in my plate. But we ended up going to the distillery, to the club, sorry, and get shown around by somebody called Jane Brown, who you may or may not have heard of. But she is a former president of the Robert Burns World Federation, but she was also the manager and landlady at the Globe for 20 odd years. And uh, I knew her quite well at that point. And she did this wonderful tour of the Burns rooms, which needed a lot of love and attention, but she did this most wonderful tour and brought it all to life for us. And it then became quite clear to Theresa, my wife and I, that, well, this really was something that we wanted to take on because these rooms need to be preserved. And that's exactly what we've done. So, so we've stripped out a lot of the stuff that was in there and recreated it, them with period furniture, most of it genuine period, period furniture. And so now you can come to the club and, and have a, a tour of the, the three principal Burns rooms and, and learn something about what how Burns was in his Dumfries period uh, and, and about the material that he created. And he was prolific during that period as well. And, and the whiskey um, back at Annandale is, going, is available at the Globe. Most certainly. Good. Now, <laughs> this whiskey that you're doing yeah. under the Annandale brand, yeah. you've got various types of whiskey. That's correct. And when have you started to, uh, and excuse me, just so we're clear, when have they become available and when will they become available, do you hope, over here? Right. Okay. So, so we we basically make two different styles of whiskey, uh, a, a, an unpeated whiskey and a peated whiskey. Um, and and being a south of Scotland distillery, which comes under the Lowland region uh, in the way that um, Scotch whiskies are designated, most people tend to think that they would be quite mild in character. Um, but that's actually a piece of nonsense because the, where, there were four distilleries in the south of Scotland. And then when we took Annandale on, all four of them had gone by this time. Uh, I was very gladly Black Knocks back in, in full production. But um, all four of them had made peated whiskey. So it's a kind of myth that, uh, that, that they would be light in character. In fact, they would be quite heavily peated. And the reason for that is that the, the, the topography in the south of Scotland, particularly in Dumfries and Galloway, is very boggy and very peaty, just like Ireland, really. Uh, and, and of course, one of the main sources of fuel is peat. So why wouldn't they use peat in the malt kiln to dry the germinating malt? So actually, we discovered, and we have now, we have historical evidence of this, Annandale distillery had always produced peated whiskey. And in fact, we believe it was certainly Jim, Wan, Jim Swan's theory 
that Johnny Walker actually bought Annandale Distillery in order to obtain its peated whiskey for blending purposes. So, so, so we decided we would make peated whiskey, but the market is still with unpeated whiskey. So we designed the distillery to um, to create both, and that's what we've done. And it's quite unusual for a distillery to be able to do that because we can switch from one to another. Quite so easily. you've got a, a, a peated whiskey will be slightly heavier. Uh, it, it's stronger in character, yes, because yes. pitiness is in Yes, that's what I mean. So that's yes. a heavier one. And then you have the lighter one yeah. as well. I'm, I'm not sure I would describe it as lighter, actually. It's, it, it's got, it hasn't got the pity character, but it's got quite a lot of other characters. It's quite a complex whiskey. Uh, so so I, I wouldn't describe it as light, but it's certainly less, it's not as heavy as the pitted version. Yes, because for me, I find the peaty whiskey's quite a little bit heavy for me, and so I would be drawn to the other one to try your other ones. Well, I'm going to suggest that when you can, you should try some of our peated. We call it Man of Sword for reasons right. I can explain. Because what we tried to do was create a slightly different peated whiskey where there were other characteristics, particularly fruity characteristics, but also a caramel type characteristic. Mm blended in with it so the peatiness isn't raw it's beautifully well integrated and for me the crucial thing about a whiskey uh, is that it should be balanced it should be complex uh, and, and it shouldn't be harsh or, or particularly pungent now when um so the when did the whiskies begin coming to market they started coming to market in 2017 so just when it reached the the minimum age of three years old. So we, 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 we bottled several casks at the time, really as a marker to say that we were here and uh, we still have some of them actually, but they, 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 they were, they've done pretty well actually. So it, it, the way we designed the, the distillation process or the production process was to make a type of whiskey that would mature relatively quickly not not particularly to get it to market quickly, but the, the type of character of whiskey that we wanted to produce would tend to mature quite quite quickly. And uh, um, I have not uh, yet um, seen it over here. It, are no. we yet available to us over here? Because we'd mm. love to share that with um, our diaspora here. Yes. Well, I would be delighted for you to share it with the diaspora in the U.S., the, the, the problem we have is that we still only produce relatively small amounts of, of whiskey at the minute, but it's, it's growing quite quickly now. And the difficulty you have in the United States is we have to deal with almost every state separately. Oh, yes. It's a nightmare. Oh, it's a nightmare. Well, they, I think you've answered the question yourself. It is a nightmare. And quite honestly, there are easier nuts to crack and... Uh, but it's very much on our on our radar that we want to do this. And in this forthcoming financial year, which starts at the beginning of April, we will certainly, it's certainly something that we aspire to do. Well, we, we look forward to being able to maybe help you a little bit. We oh. work with a wonderful ambassador called Robin Robinson, who curates our whiskey um, uh, experiences. And uh, we love working with the young new distilleries as well as the larger ones who have wonderful yeah. whiskies too and so maybe we'll see how we can 
help you and introduce you. And so many um, of the people we work with, they're in, you know, 20, there seems to be 20 or so easier ones to get the clearances on up to about 30. And then we seem to get to a plateau, but there yeah. seem to be more and more ways to do it. Yeah. So um, I really hope that we can help you and that we are able to be seeing you this side of the Atlantic soon. Well, it would be nice because, I mean, obviously, there's if you think of Canada as well, that's also quite difficult too. Uh, the Ontario Liquor Board and the easiest people to deal with. But um, obviously, the Scottish diaspora in the North America is, is something that's very close to my heart. And I, I visit the US quite a lot, actually, on business and for my other business. Uh, so I, I would very much want to have our whiskey in the in the US market. Well, we look, before we do that, when we're visiting Scotland, we can come to Annan and come to Dumfries and have a wonderful experience with you. you can. And we're very much looking forward to that. So we look forward to catching up with you soon and following you on this next stage of the journey of Annandale. Well, thank you. And that's very kind of you to say so. But you'd be most welcome. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining us this week for this, our fourth in the series of the distilleries from Scotland to England and throughout the British Isles. We're going to be reporting on the wonderful uptick in new distilleries that are making their way across the United to the United States. So thank you for joining us. Tune in and look for us the first and third Monday of the month. And for other information on the American Scottish Foundation, visit our website, AmericanScottishFoundation.org. And so until next time. Mm -hmm.